I'm very grateful to be here with you this morning. I've prayed for this church for many years. Pastor Lutzer many years ago said to me, Jerry, I told him I prayed for him every day. And he said, would you pray for my church too? So I'm happy to be here among you. You've been in my prayers for years. Um, I want to speak from a passage of scripture. It's one verse, it's Philemon verse six, and I'm going to recite it from the New International Version 1984, because in my own opinion, I think that's the best translation of this verse. I pray that you will be active in sharing your faith so that you'll have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I worship you for this morning. I recognize it's one morning quickly upon us, and quickly it will be forgotten. And I know, Father, that every person that came here has different issues in his or her life. Joyful ones, sorrowful ones. Pressures of a moment, pressures at work, maybe difficulties at home, maybe great Thanksgiving at home, but nobody here has the exact same set of circumstances. And it is ludicrous to think that one person could stand up at the front of this church and say something that could benefit every life. I feel like what I'm offering these people is crumbs. But once your son was offered not much more than crumbs, five loaves and two fish, and he took it and blessed it and multiplied it, and everybody left satisfied. Please, Lord, I pray, let your Holy Spirit do for us this morning what your son did then. Take these crumbs and multiply them, and let each person here hear what she or he needs to hear this morning. And let it work its way in our lives in such a manner that every person in this room will see one person come to faith over this next year. And I ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. When Paul wrote that passage, he said, I pray you'll be active in sharing your faith so that you'll have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ Jesus. We don't share Jesus so that the church could increase its roles. We don't share Jesus so that the church could increase giving units. We share Jesus because people need to know how deeply they're loved by God. We share Christ that people might know that they could have the hope of forgiveness of sins and that God would be willing to enter into their life as Lord and bring order out of the chaos. That's why we share Jesus. But Paul says if we engage in that activity, we will grow and mature. Matter of fact, the word there, full, full understanding, is one word in the original, and it's the most intimate word for knowledge in the New Testament. There's a level of intimacy you cannot know unless you're engaged where heart, God's heart is engaged, wooing the world to himself. It was Dawson Trotman who founded the Navigators and set up the follow-up program for the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association who preached a sermon once called Born to Reproduce. He said a person is physiologically mature when that person could reproduce physiologically and that person is spiritually mature when they could reproduce spiritually. Lead a person to Christ, nurture that person in faith, and deploy that person so that they could lead others to Christ as well. There was a man named David Morkin who used to travel the nation preaching with Dawson Trotman. 
I had the privilege of having breakfast with him one time. I said, tell me Trotman's stories. He said, once I was with Trotman in a church in the Pacific Northwest, a large church. The pastor of that church had been led to Christ and discipled by Trotman. Trotman introduced him that way. Or excuse me, the pastor introduced Trotman that way. Trotman steps into the pulpit, calls the pastor back to his side and says, what I'm going to do now is utterly unrehearsed. But I had the joy of leading your pastor to Christ and discipling him. That's why I'm not afraid to do what I'm going to do. And he said to him, point me to somebody in this congregation you led to Christ and discipled. Imagine it. He points back to Matthew. Trotman said, Matthew, stand up. Point me to somebody in this congregation you led to Christ and discipled. He points over to Stephen. Stephen, stand up. Point me to somebody in this congregation you led to Christ and discipled. He points over to Lydia. Lydia, stand up. It went like that for seven generations. I said, incredible. And that's one of the sad things, that the normative has become the incredible. How can we get back to normal again? How can we get back to the place where our hearts burst with the love of God and it demonstrates itself by us trying to nurture other people into that same venue of knowing they're loved by God? How do we grow? Uh, I'm going to suggest three ways. If there's three ways, there could be 303. But let me just start with three, and I'll start with the first one, and I'm going to contextualize it. I didn't become a Christian till I was in college. I grew up in South Central Los Angeles. I went to a church. They were good-hearted people, but I never heard the gospel there. You see, they told me if I went to a movie and Jesus came back, he wouldn't go in the theater to get me. I'd just go straight to hell. I wanted to see Walt Disney's The Shaggy Dog, but didn't know if it was worth risking my eternal destiny to go see. <laughs> the neighbor lady, Mrs. Greenlee, came down and asked my mom if my brothers could go with her boys to see the shaggy dog, and I'm looking at my mother with great ambivalence. I want to go on one hand, scared stiff on the other, and when my mom said it would be okay for us to go, I began to wonder if she really loved me, <laughs> that she would put my life in such eternal peril. I was told in a Sunday school class if I lived a holy and righteous life all my life, but had one bad thought the last second of my life, I'd go straight to hell. And what I deduced as a boy about eight or nine years old is that if I could lose this relationship based on what I did, I had to gain it based on what I did, and there was nothing of the love of God, the grace of God, the forgiveness of Christ, and what he accomplished for me in his death and resurrection. And consequently, I just thought I'm going to hell anyway. I might as well live like it. And I started living a pretty wild life because I thought there's no way I could make it on my own efforts. And all I was doing was making my life miserable and the people around me miserable. And I was in existential despair when I went to college, and my older brother was a Christian, and he took me to a Campus Crusade for Christ meeting, and the first time in my life I heard the gospel clear. God loved me. God forgave me. God would enter into my life and bring order out of the chaos. I responded and was so excited. I wanted everybody to know. I think that's the way we should be. I don't have the gift of evangelism. I wish I did. I've seen people with the gift of evangelism. Everything I've learned, I think I've learned by mistakes. I have it, though, as a high value. And I've had pastors say to me, oh, Jerry, we really encourage the people with the gift of evangelism to go do it. 
I say, wow, I'd love to come preach at church church so I could tell the people that don't have the gift of giving, they don't have to give anymore. And I don't want to go to the church where only those with the gift of mercy are merciful. All of us are to exercise in all of these areas. Some people have a special aptitude. But this should be a high value for all of us, and so I started sharing my faith. And it was in that context I came to the first place where I started to really grow. I found people would ask me questions. I hate to confess this to you, but before I was a Christian, I never once asked the question, if God's good and all-powerful, why does evil exist in the universe? I've since written a book on that. It's a question that matters to me, but I'd never asked it. And I went and shared my faith with people, and they asked it. And I would say, wow, that's a good question. I don't know. I didn't let it be a conversation stopper. I said, if that's a concern of yours, I won't leave a stone unturned until I can find out some substantive answer. We might not ever get to the bottom of it, but some substantive sure word that will help you understand so that you can come to know how much God loves you. I'd get back to them. Sometimes they'd trust Christ. Sometimes they'd just ask a new question. What about the other religions? How do you know the Bible's really God's word? How come Jesus says he's the only way? And I would hear these questions. I'd say, those are great questions. And I would dig. And I found answers. And I realized this faith was more interesting than I ever imagined. And I was fascinated. And I was growing. Matter of fact, I learned not to be afraid of questions. I even learned not to be afraid of doubts. Matter of fact, I'd say to you, if you have no doubts about your faith at all, you're delusional because you think you've achieved omniscience. How many of you, every time you read through the Bible, you see something new you never saw before? Yeah, why is that? I think it comes from omniscience, frankly. How many of you have ever read through the Bible and you saw something and you said, man, what am I going to make of that? That doesn't make any sense to me. I'm in my 47th read through the whole Bible. I've read the New Testament 31 times besides that, and I've read the Greek Bible a couple times. And, and, and every time I go through, I see something I don't understand. I just put it in the pending tray. Just put it there. Read on through. Next time I come through, I go, oh, that's what that's about. And I've learned not to be afraid of questions and doubts, and it came from sharing my faith, and I started to grow, and I keep finding this thing more and more fascinating every time. C.S. Lewis said, if our religion is objective, we must never avert our eyes from those elements in it which seem puzzling or repellent, for it's precisely in the puzzling or repellent where we learn what we do not yet know and need desperately to know. And sharing your faith keeps you growing in that way. Second, if I share my faith, I'll not only grow because people will ask questions, I'm going to grow because people are going to scrutinize my life. Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living. If you're not examining your life, I guarantee you, if you're sharing your faith, everybody else will feel it's their responsibility to examine it for you. I knew a man once who said, I'd never put a Christian bumper sticker on my car. If I did, I'd have to drive better. Everywhere where I go, where I share my faith, I find there are people who are wounded by Christians who have acted poorly. I know in my early days, I was not as sensitive as I should have been when I shared my faith. And I wounded some people. And I had to go back and ask their forgiveness. 
Some of those guys, two, three years later, I had the joy of leading them to Christ because they knew I heard their criticism. And they knew I wanted to grow closer to Jesus so I could work some of that stuff out. Spurgeon said, I've learned to kiss the wave that slaps me against the rock of ages. And if I share my faith and I begin to discover that people see things in my life that's contrary to the gospel, I worship God for that information that I might not have gotten had I not been out sharing my faith. Sometimes I run into people and they're so mad at God because some Christian hurt them. I look at them, I hear their story, and I say, what you've just shared with me makes me so sad. I'm a Christian. Will you let me stand as a surrogate in the place of that person who hurt you and ask your forgiveness? Because I wouldn't want anything to keep you from seeing how deeply you're loved by Jesus. You share your faith, you'll grow because people ask you questions. You'll share your faith and you'll grow because people will scrutinize your life and you'll be praying, God, help me to bring my life in alignment with your word and with your work of your Holy Spirit in my life to make me more like the Lord Jesus. And all of us have so far to go. And I think as we share our faith, those opportunities to see where we can grow increase and to see how God will walk us through those places. But third, you share your faith, and you're going to see God at work in your world. I knew a man, he started a church years ago with 25 people in his living room. In 10 years, that church grew to over 1,000. Now that church is one of the mega churches in America. He's not the pastor there, but he nurtured it through that first 10 years and first growth to 1,000. That's tough growth. He said he had a man in his church who was... Uh, uh, a businessman, a, an engineer who had started a company, and this man was on the church board. My friend said he knew him at church well, but one day this board member said, I want you to come and see my business, and I want you to uh, uh, just have an opportunity to look around, and then afterwards we'll go to lunch and we'll talk about church business. My pastor friend said he went and he was amazed. He knew the guy started from scratch, but he had 500 employees. He saw the complexity of the place. He saw how this man called every person by name when they walked through the plant. Sylvia, it's great to have you back from your maternity leave. Did you bring pictures of the baby? Do you need a little more time off? Hey, George, wasn't your group in that bowling league championship last night? How'd that go for you? He couldn't believe the personal nature and his concern and nurture and his connection with his workers. He said, you know, I knew that man for years at church. But I never really got to know him until I got to know him in his workplace. You see the application? You can know God for years at church, but you'll never really get to know him until you get to know him in his workplace. Even those people who talked about spirituality in the Middle Ages says that's the zenith of moving in the realm of maturity when you unite yourself with the purposes of God missionally in the world. So how does it work? So we talk about those things. You'll grow and you'll mature because you will, one, get to know God better in that you will ask questions. People will ask you questions and you'll grow learning the answers. You'll get to know God better because um, the people will scrutinize your life and you get to grow and mature in that way. And you'll get to know God better because you'll get to know him in his workplace. So let's look at some practical applications. How can we go about this practically? I think, number one, pray. 
When I became a new Christian, the pastor at the church I attended said, Jerry, if God answered every prayer you prayed this last week, would there be anybody new in the kingdom? If I'm not praying for opportunities, I'm probably missing all the opportunities that are around me all the time. And I know there's opportunities around you. You know how? Because Jesus said the fields were white under harvest. He said the problem isn't with people who want to know. The problem is there are too many people who are unwilling to tell. I have never found it easier to share my faith than now. Uh, Augustine said the hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. We, where in our secular society do people have a chance to process what's going on inside their heart? No place. And I found as I engage people in conversation in a sensitive way, all kinds of doors open up, more than I've ever seen because I think our society is suppressing that deep impulse of the heart that's questing for God. So begin with prayer. If you're introverted and a bit shy, use prayer to your advantage. Tell people once in a while you're praying for them and watch where that goes. I, I remember I used to live in Santa Barbara, California. If, if you believe in Jesus, I think when you die, you go to Santa Barbara. <laughs> it's a beautiful place. I used to do working lunches while I was there, four mornings a week. And I'd go to the same restaurant. You get tired of the food, but you're not there for the food. You're there for bigger purposes. The guy who ran the restaurant was a guy named Brad. And... I put his name on my list as soon as I met him. And every time I would go there, I'd have a little small talk with Brad. Hey, Brad, I locked the mahi-mahi sandwich. I hope you keep it on the menu. Hey, Brad, how's business? Hey, Brad, did you catch a game last night? Three weeks went by, and I said to him after three weeks, Hey, Brad, I pray for you every day. I've never said that to a person and had them say back to me, Well, would you stop it? <laughs> People are happy somebody's praying for them. Next three weeks, small talk, every time I saw him. Three weeks later, I said, hey, Brad, I pray for you every day. He said to me, you know, Jerry, you said that a few weeks back. I didn't really believe you, but you must really be praying if you say it again. I said, Brad, I never miss. He said to me, Jerry, would you pray for my boys too? I wrote down his boy's name. That night at dinner, I said to my family, hey, Brad asked me to pray for his boys. My daughter said, Dad, I know his one son. He goes to my school. I wish you could have been there five months later when my daughter came home from youth group at church and said, hey, Dad, somebody brought Brad's son to church tonight and he gave his heart to Jesus. My kids know God answers these prayers. Every one of us could just tell people once in a while we're praying for them. When it went like that with Brad for about nine months. One day he came up to me while I was eating lunch and he said, Jerry, I've got to talk to you right after lunch. This guy was an NFL, former pro football player, all pro. He's a big guy. He says, I need to talk to you after lunch. Okay, I called my secretary and changed my schedule for that afternoon. We go down to a coffee shop and he breaks his heart in front of me, shares with me all the sadness in his life. Why? Because he knew I was spiritually concerned about him. We didn't have any conversations deeper than I pray for you, but persistently I would tell him. After three hours and through tears, I said, Brad, I think you need Jesus in your life. I shared the gospel with him in about four or five minutes, and he said, you know what, Jerry, I think I need Jesus too, but I don't want to give him my life like it is right now. I want to fix it first, and then I'll give it to him. I said, it doesn't usually work that way, Brad. You can try it, but if it doesn't work, let me know. 
Sure enough, five months later, he calls me up at my office and said, Jerry, my way's not working. He came to my office, and I never saw anybody use more Kleenex than Brad used when he came to faith that day. But we start follow-up. We start getting together for Bible study and doing follow-up, which is a very important part of this, whenever you can. And you know what? About six years ago, Brad dropped dead of a heart attack. And one day, I'm going to introduce you to him. Because what we do here matters, and it matters forever. One day I was sitting at home, and I was saying, Lord, there are people who are on your radar screen who aren't on mine. You said the fields are white into harvest. I'm willing to go into that harvest. Lead me to the ones that you want to see come to Christ. Sometimes it doesn't go so well. It's all right. If you're afraid of striking out, don't play baseball. But if you don't play baseball, you'll never know the joy of hitting a home run. Plus, if you feel the impulse of the Holy Spirit in your heart to share, and He's in charge, you don't know. You might be number five, sharing with the person that's going to take 12 people before they finally come to Christ. Be part of the process. That's okay. But if you're part of the process with frequency, you're going to see many people make that decision to follow Jesus. And I'm sitting at my house. I was off on Fridays in those days. And I'm sitting at home and I'm saying, Lord, there are people on your radar screen who aren't on mine. Open my eyes. And just then the garbage guy pulls up. I go, wow. I don't have to look for him. He comes to my house every week. I wrote down in my prayer list, garbage guy. It was a hot part of the year. So that, at that particular uh, time, he always came at 10 o'clock Fridays. I got some iced tea all ready for him. Sure enough, when I heard the engine coming, I was out there. He pulls the truck in front of the house. It was back in the days when they had those ones where they'd come around the back and throw the trash in the basket in the back of the truck. He comes around the back, and I'm standing there. He's kind of surprised. I say, you look like you could use a break. You drink the tea. I'll throw the trash. I'm throwing the trash, and I'm looking at this guy out of the corner of my eyes, and he's going to this, you know, who's this guy? Is this, is this safe? Takes a little sip, seemed okay, and I said, what's your name? He said, Mike. He has a name. I erase garbage guy. And I put down Mike, and I started praying for Mike, and every week I had something cold for him to drink in the hot part of the year, something hot for him to drink in the cold. He started to like me. My kids were little. Every once in a while, he'd say, hey, Jerry, look, I found this perfectly good toy in the trash. I'll bet your kids would like it. He would save me toys from the trash. Is that cool or what? <laughs> One day, he came by about noon. I was out there. I said, Mike, you're kind of late today. He said, yeah, I had some troubles on my route. I said, it was about lunchtime. Did you eat lunch yet? He said, no, I haven't. I said, you want to come on in? I'll make you a sandwich. He said, okay. I didn't know those guys could do that. He comes in, I make him lunch in my house. You know what? He changed his route after that and came by at noon every week. <laughs> and it was in those days when we were eating lunch together that I was able to share the gospel with him. You know what his story was? He was living in a neighborhood, and there was some lady in that neighborhood who loved the kids in that neighborhood. And she started a backyard Bible club, and he came, and he told me he heard and he remembered praying the prayer. And then two weeks later, his folks moved away, and nobody ever followed him or talked to him again. I bet he crossed the path of thousands of Christians over those years. And I got him a Bible, and we started going through Bible study every week at lunch. 
He started going to church with his wife and kids, and they came to faith, and it wasn't long after that that he got traded off the route, and I got a new guy, Mick, and I was able to share with him too. You know, God cycles those garbage guys through. <laughs> there was Steve, the mailman. He came every day. If I was home, uh, still to this day, if I'm home and the mailman or mailwoman comes to my house, I always say to them, do you need to use the toilet? I mean, what do those people do when they're on their route? And just simple acts of human kindness can open up incredible doors. And Steve was the guy, and over time, I was able to lead Steve the mailman to Jesus. These aren't people who are out there. These are people in your world now. And Steve came to Jesus, and I said, Steve, you've got to come to church on Sunday. He said, well, Jerry, I, I've got, I'm divorced. I've got two kids, and the only time I can have them is on the weekends. I said, bring them. Our church has great programs for kids. They're going to love it. And he, he comes. They come over for dinner afterwards. And after dinner, I was able to lead his two boys to Jesus as well. There was the bank teller, Kevin. He knew a lot about me. He saw what was in my account. <laughs> and as we got to know each other over time, I said, you ever go to lunch with people? He says, yeah, I do. And over lunch, I was able to share the gospel with him. Like I said, it doesn't always go well. And sometimes it takes time. But if you've got 10 people in your life you're praying for, and once in a while you tell them you're praying for them, my guess is you're going to see one or two of those percolate into an opportunity for you to walk them across into the kingdom over a year's time. You know, one, one fun one for me, too, is uh, church. It's a great place to lead people to Jesus. If the church here assigned you seating charts and you all had to sit in the same place every Sunday, you'd all rebel. But look at you, you sit in the same place every Sunday anyway. <laughs> what if you became a pastor of your pew? What if you just started watching and praying for the people at your pew? And then say, Lord, I'm here. I know there are people, there's people in this room right now I know that don't know Christ yet. And if you hear what I'm saying and it's curious to you, come forward. I'd love to talk with you afterwards. Or ask the person sitting next to you. See, I want to know a little bit more about this. Almost every Sunday, I try to look for somebody. And I, I, I'll say to them, you know, I, I don't think I've ever seen you before. Are you new? And if they're visiting and they've moved to the area and they're looking for a church, you're going to be welcoming. That's going to be great. If they don't know Jesus, then you can say, is there anything I can share with you that might clarify what was going on this morning? I used to pastor a church, and there was a guy, a young guy. I was in Santa Barbara, and there was a young guy, and he was sitting on the front row. I went to him, and I said, um, I, I don't think I've ever seen you before. He says, no, I've never been here before. I said, what's your name? He said, Robert. I said, Robert, what brings you here? So my girlfriend broke up with me on the college campus last week. My heart's all broken and ripped up. I thought maybe if I went to church, I could find something that could help me. There are people like that who come into churches every Sunday. They walk in and they walk out, and nobody talks to them. I said, well, Robert, do you mind if I share with you the central message of the Bible in just a brief word? He said, no. I shared the gospel with him. I said, does this make sense to you? He said, yeah. I said, is there any reason why you wouldn't want to trust Christ right now? Don't be afraid to ask a person. Is there any reason why you wouldn't want to trust Christ right now? He said, none. So, 
I shared the gospel. He prayed with me to trust Christ right after that worship service. And then whenever I lead a person to Christ, I take them to John 6, 47 to follow them up, start the follow-up process. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Did you believe? Yes. What do you have? Eternal life. I said, yeah, but it's not just forever. It's more. And I take them to John 17, 3, where Jesus said, and this is eternal life that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Eternal life is getting to know the God who loves you. This is what evangelism is about. It's not about swelling church roles. It's helping people know how deeply they're loved by God and how great is his forgiveness and relationship with him. And then I take them to Matthew 13, parable of the sowers. And I say, you know, explaining it to them, which soil do you think you'd like to be? I've never had anybody say, you know, I'd like to really shoot for that weedy one. (laughs) Mediocrity, that's what I'm all about. They always say, I want to be the fruitful one. I say, so do I. How about if we start getting together and see if we can't encourage one another to be more fruitful? And it's in that context I talk with them about the importance of being in the Word. Learning how great prayer is to express our hearts to the God who wants to be in relationship with us. About fellowship, not just for worship, but fellowship where we're engaging in life with other believers so we could have checks on those goofy things in our life because we can confess our sins to one another and be encouraged by one another to grow in serious ways. I talk to them about giving and about how important it is to cultivate a life of magnanimity, concern for the benefit of others. When Christ dies on the cross, the high courtesy of heaven is there. He says, I give my life for you. I say, you get to learn to give your life for other people. And we talk about several other things, obedience and whatnot. And finally, I say to them, okay, I want to take you with me to share the gospel with somebody else because I want to reproduce a reproducer. So I took Robert with me, and we went out to a college campus, and we shared Jesus. I said, I'll do it first. Second time, I'll initiate, and I'll invite you in, ask you to share how you came to faith. And then third, you initiate, and I'll be here to back you up. So we went out, and I wish I could say, and revival broke out, millions came to Jesus, and who's Billy Graham, you know? We've got it, we got it like, no, nothing, nobody came to Jesus. But you know what Robert saw? It's not that hard. It's not that hard. And that next week, I get a phone call from Robert, and he said, Jerry, I'm sharing with my roommate, Paul. He's got some questions. I don't know how to answer them. Can we come up to your office? He came to my office. And I I was listening to Paul's questions, and I took him to the place uh, where I gave him an answer, and I said, is that sufficient for you? And he said, yeah. And I said, is there any reason why you wouldn't want to trust Christ right now, given your understanding of the gospel? And he said, no reason at all. And I could have just jumped in and prayed with him and missed out on this great opportunity. I said, Robert, why don't you lead Paul into a relationship with Christ? And he prays with him. And then he takes him to John 6, 47. He takes him to John 17, 3. He takes him to Matthew 13. And he starts following up Paul. Then he and Paul start sharing on the campus. Six months later, Robert came to me and he said, you know, my family lives in San Diego. I'm leaving Santa Barbara. I'm moving down and transferring because I want to be near where my family is because I want to share the gospel with them. He left my life. 
I left Santa Barbara and came to teach at Wheaton College. Several years passed. And I was asked to come back and speak at Biola University in their spiritual formation week. And the first thing I was supposed to do was meet with Talbot seminarians at a, at a breakfast. And it was at a restaurant called Mimi's. I don't know if you've ever been to Mimi's in Southern California. It looks like somebody walked in and sprayed it with a foo-foo gun. And I pull into the parking lot in the rental car, and who's getting out of the car right next to me in the parking lot? Robert. I said, Robert, this is so weird. You went down to San Diego, I went out to Chicago. Here we are pulling into a parking lot in La Mirada, California. Who would have ever thought? What a coincidence. He said, no, I'm here to have breakfast with you. I said, no, 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 Robert, I'm, I'm meeting with a bunch of seminarians. Wow. Wow. And Robert's pastoring a church now in Arizona. Is it cool or what, people? I want to share with you one other easy way to do this. You can have contact evangelism, go out and just share people with you that you meet, like Jesus did with the woman at the well, like Paul did in the marketplace. For some people, that comes somewhat easy but not for everybody. Sometimes you're thrown in context with somebody and you share Christ with them there. I was sitting on an airplane one time. I had just finished giving a paper at a theology conference. I'm sitting on the window to fly back. A guy comes and sits next to me on the middle seat and I said, what's your name? And he said, Sean. He said, Rats, I got this middle seat. If I'd have really been magnanimous, I'd have given him my seat since he didn't like the middle. I didn't do that. Sometimes I'm working on it still. Guy comes and sits on the aisle seat, and he says, Professor Root. I said, you got the drop on me. I'm sorry, I don't know you. He said, I was at your paper at the theology conference. So he and I start talking theology, and I got this guy on the middle seat. That's a context that God throws you in. <laughs> I say to the guy in the middle seat, Sean, I said, Sean, forgive us. We were just at a theology conference. I don't want you to feel like you're unincluded in this conversation. A minute or two later, I turn to Sean and I say, Sean, are you a spiritual person? He said, I am. I said, tell me about it. He said, I went and studied with a shaman in Peru one time. Don't be put off by any kind of spiritual hunger that shows up in a conversation. I said, tell me about it, Sean. He saved up his money, saved up his vacation time, went down to Peru for three weeks to study with this guy. I said, how did that go for you, Sean? He said, it was the worst money I ever spent in my life. He said, what's in it for you, Jerry? And I said, Sean, for me it's this. I don't know a human being who's thought about life well, who doesn't long to be loved unconditionally. Human love is great as far as it goes, but my guess is, as humans, we haven't loved each other perfectly. At least I don't think I have. But we long to be loved perfectly, unconditionally, with a love that does not diminish if we do poorly and a love that is not improved if we do well, because it's constant. And I said, I don't know a person who's lived a moment of honest life who's unaware of the fact that they're messed up. And this message that I can be forgiven because God loves me and extends his forgiveness to me in Christ's death and resurrection and reconciles me to himself. And I don't know a person who's lived honest life that wouldn't like to have God enter into their life as Lord to bring order out of the chaos. Sean said, that's the most comforting thing I've ever heard in my life. 
I said, Sean, is there any reason why you wouldn't want to trust Christ right now? He said, none. He prayed out loud with me on that airplane about 15 minutes into the flight. Guy sitting on the aisle, he was doing his doctorate at Trinity Seminary in apologetics. He's used to building scaffolding and defending the faith. He wasn't used to obstetrics. This guy's born again right next to him. And he turned to this guy and loved on that guy the rest of the flight back and entered into some follow-up with that guy. Is that cool or what? And I have, to, I have to say this. You go then in some cases where you know people for a long time and you've never shared with them. Why, why, why don't you say to the person who's your friend you've never shared? You know, I know the, the sports teams you like. I know the names of your kids. I know where you like to vacation and your hobbies and interests. I realize I've never shared Jesus with you before or I've never talked to you about spiritual things. Do you think sometime we could talk about your spiritual story? And so often people will say, yeah, sometime we could do that. Small talk with them next time. The next time you go talk with them, you just say, hey, remember sometime we were going to do this. Do you mind if we have breakfast this week? And the doors open up and you begin to share with them and it enters into the conversation. Don't be afraid to ask public questions. What's your name? If you meet somebody in Chicago, are you from Chicago? They're in Chicago. It's a public question. It's not intrusive. Listen to the answer. In the answer, the people will take you deeper and deeper, and they give you, in each answer, permission to go deeper till you find the place where the gospel can Velcro and connect with that person. It's not that hard, and it's a lot of fun. Let's pray. Father, please, I pray, let each person in this room, in the power of your Holy Spirit, have their eyes open to ways that they can do this in a manner that is not contrary to their own personality and hardwiring, but in a way that is totally coherent and consistent. And I pray that every person in this room will get to see one person come to faith this next year. Father, as a nation, I ask that you would forgive us as Christians for our belly aching about political systems and doing nothing to see hearts change. Help us, Father, to engage in your mission so that as we do that, we'll see the wrinkles in our culture begin to smooth out because people will find what they're really looking for in your Son. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.